The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. So, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. This is um, a continuation of our uh, Jesus is Advent uh, series. We're actually, I guess, on the third day of Christmas now. Advent is technically over. And we're going to look at uh, some events from early on in the life of Jesus, what we're going to call a climactic beginning. And uh, along with that, uh, this idea of Jesus kind of saying, in a sense, even though he's 41 days old and basically all he can do is cry, uh, hello world. This is his announcement on the biggest stage in his world. Uh, Last weekend, Tiger Woods played in a golf tournament with his now 11-year-old son. And it was the buzz of social media, of uh, television networks uh, that focus in on sports. Uh, This little 11-year-old child walked like his dad, talked trash like his dad, swung the club like his dad, and even twirled it like his dad when he hit a good shot. It was really a beautiful thing to watch. But at the same time, it made me feel really, really old. There was this talk of what a great golfer this 11-year-old kid could be. What he could become, where he could go if he kept playing golf like he was on this stage in front of the whole wide world with some of the best players in the world and even hitting better shots than his dad. It made me think a bit about the arc of his dad's career as the next Jack Nicholas in a world obsessed with who's going to be the next greatest of all time. So in August 1996, fresh off his third consecutive uh, win in the United States Men's Amateur Golf Championships, Tiger Woods turned pro in order to play in the Greater Milwaukee Open. What a great place to start, Milwaukee. On Wednesday of that week, and I apologize for the blurriness of the picture, it was taken in 1996, you know. He stood at the podium in the press conference, smiled this huge smile and said, well, I guess, hello world. As one article about the day said, it seemed spontaneous, but was anything but. Because later that week, Nike produced an ad with that refrain over and over and over again, hello world. In the the midst of the the ad, it announced all of these accolades that he shot in the 70s when he was like 10 years old and in the 60s when he was 12 and how he had won three junior amateur championships and three United States men's amateur championships, how he had played in the Masters at 19. And then it concluded with this. I've heard, I'm not ready for you. Are you ready for me? There was a bravado, a confidence, a charisma in ample supply that had been in some ways established by a life in front of the world, a life from the time he was about two years old hitting golf balls on a late night television show all the way through this time as a 20-year-old young man that built this this persona. That had not yet known the pain of a broken body. 
and a windshield busted by a nine iron that caused his world to fall apart. We want and desire the next big thing, the next Willie Mays, the next Michael Jordan, the next, now, Tiger Woods. And in the time that Jesus was born, things were very similar. The people of Israel were looking for God to do the next big thing, to intervene in their affairs, to set things right. And for nearly 400 years, God had not raised up a prophet. There certainly were ones who claimed to be prophets, who claimed to speak for God, but they were broken beyond belief, like most of our greatest of all time. They were looking for God to to make the world like he had said it was going to be and their experience didn't match up with what his scriptures declared. The scriptures declared that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the one true and living God, but every day they were faced with the reality that a foreign military power was in control of the land that God had promised to them forever. And that this power worshiped many gods, which made all the peoples of the earth believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not the all-powerful God, was not the one true God. And so as a result, the Jewish people in large measure desired that God would intervene, that God would set things right, that God would show himself to be true and the rest to be liars. Well, over the arc of our study of the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we realize now that Jesus is God. Jesus is here. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. The next big thing they were looking for was here. But how is the world going to hear? How is this going to be launched? How are we going to see him brought to the main stage of the Jewish world? Well, God's word makes that happen. His parents take him to the temple on the 41st day of his life. And what happens here is, frankly, more amazing than we could ever imagine. So let's begin reading in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. We have here one verse, (coughs) excuse me, uh, from the eighth day of his life that then leads into and transitions to the 41st. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, so we see this transition from eight days to 41 days, When the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, notice that's the third time, maybe Luke wants us to recognize that, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, You can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother, Mary, indeed, This child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be opposed. And the sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And then we see Luke summarize this event. When they had completed everything, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was upon him. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that by our time together, that what was said of Jesus here at the end of this text, that he grew in wisdom and great grace was upon him, that that would be the, the story of our time together today. That as we've gathered together in this place for the purpose of exalting the one true and living God as he's been revealed by his son and is presently at work in us through the spirit that we would grow in wisdom and in grace and favor with you. That you would set in our hearts and minds the arc of growth for the year to come that when we find ourselves in this place a year from now, that we could say that we have over this last year grown in wisdom, that we have grown in grace and in your favor. That our eyes have been fixed on the one who is the savior of the world king of our lives. Lord, do your work in us. Confirm your word to us and change us by your spirit today, we pray. In the name of King Jesus. So as we begin our examination of today's passage, let's remember a couple of things that will sort of set our minds where Luke is headed. Remember, back in verses three and four of chapter one, he tells Theophilus, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So keep that again in your minds. It's certainty about the things that you've been taught. So as we read this passage, let's think about how a Gentile reader who probably knows the Old Testament fairly well would hear this story and would be pushed to to trust and continue to trust that the things that they've heard, beginning with the angelic announcements of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah, and then continuing on with this amazing interaction between uh, John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, and Mary, and then on to the birth of John the Baptist, and now, last week, the birth of Jesus, that, that that we would see the flow and the movement of the story to this point where now the one who is at the center of everything takes center stage. We've been comparing Jesus and John the Baptist for several weeks now, and it's abundantly clear that Jesus alone is at the center. Jesus alone is king. John's work, which we're going to see in chapter 3, is to prepare the way, but then he's going to be gone. He is nothing in comparison to Jesus. 
And so as we see now, we've come to this point where not only has Jesus been announced by angels and shepherds, he's going to be announced by two more witnesses, a man and a woman, who clearly are speaking as prophets about this child, this baby boy, 41 days old, who will defeat the enemies of God's people, who will end their exile, who will complete the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. He will defeat the enemies of sin and death They know it, looking at a 41-day-old child. So let's see how the story unfolds. The first thing that we see here is that faithful servants declare the truth about God's faithfulness. Faithful servants declare in word and deed the truth about God's faithfulness. We're gonna see this really in three sets. The first set that demonstrate how faithful servants declare the truth about God's faithfulness are mom and dad, Joseph and Mary. Look at what Luke says in verses 21 to 24. He says, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. So there on day eight, Jesus is circumcised. He is established as a child of Israel, one in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the name that the angel declared, commanded Mary to give to her child, she does exactly what the angel says. The angel gave a command, Mary and Joseph obey. Goes on. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So here's what's going on. This is not something necessarily that we think about. It's not necessarily a part of our uh, daily lives as, as people who walk in the ways of the Lord and even as parents. So after 40 days, Joseph and Mary still, it seems, living in Bethlehem to this point took the child and made their way to the temple. This is what you do to offer sacrifices for their purification. If you want to read this in the scriptures, this is in Leviticus 12 verses 6 through 8. So essentially what you've got is eight days circumcision, then 41st day you're going to have this event take place at the temple. Now I'll just be honest, this is Uh, up until these last few weeks, been very foreign to me. I don't know I've ever stayed in one place and quarantined myself off from the world for three days, much less the 31 days that would follow the initial uncleanness of a woman who gives birth to a child, a boy child. For 31 days after those first eight days, nine days, they've been sitting there in Bethlehem away from the world. I'll just be honest, over the last 20 some odd days, that's been our experience. Sitting in our house because of a little test that says we can't see the world. And you've got two children who are as happy-go-lucky as they normally ever are. Well, one's a little aggravated. I'm not gonna name her. And, <laughs> and you can't go anywhere. You've got plans of where you're gonna be and where you're gonna go and you're, you're stuck and you're in this limbo of, do I want my child to get this so that we can go do what we wanna do or do we just hope that she doesn't get it and just wait forever and a day before we can be out amongst the living again? And that was only like 20 something days. I can't imagine 31, especially when you can't run away from the baby that won't sleep or stop screaming. So you've got this reality. They've been in the midst of this quarantine for 40 days. And the first place they go is the temple in front of the world. But Joseph and Mary do exactly what God's word says. 
And it goes on there in verse 23, just as is written in the law of the Lord, he says this a couple of times here, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is weird stuff, right? Like this is not every day for us for sure. But here's the thing, Joseph and Mary respected God's word. And because they respected God's word, they trusted God's word, they were going to do the things that God commanded of them in order to honor and worship him. And what they're doing here is they're, by their actions, going to the temple, retelling their story as a people. They're retelling who they are as God's people. This is... You know, we want to model by our actions for our children who we are as a family, like we're going to model by our actions as a church, that last value, we do hard things. We model this in our actions and they are modeling by this, frankly, kind of difficult thing to go to the temple for this sacrifice when your child is 41 days old because they wanted to set in motion the telling of a story in their lives because this is what's happening. They're not just going because God has randomly chosen the 41st day of his life for the child to be presented to the Lord and for these sacrifices to take place. Well, how do we know that? Well, this is why. In Exodus chapter four, verses 21 to 23, the Lord tells Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh and all the, all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So, so, so think about what's happening here. Israel is this people of God. They are God's family. He has chosen them. And every Israel as a unit is his firstborn child. That sets up what's gonna happen quite terribly in Egypt. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. Son for son. So they have set in motion from Exodus 4 this reality. Israel is God's firstborn son. God brought us out of Egypt as his firstborn son. He gave us freedom. He gave us new life. And and God's faithful. We're not. But in every circumstance, he's shown himself to be that. And so as we begin to walk into a new year, are we going to believe, like Joseph and Mary, that God's word is always true and that God himself is always faithful in every circumstance? Is God's word going to drive the actions of our lives like it did in the lives of Joseph and Mary? And notice they're establishing here the pattern for how they're going to parent Jesus. Obviously, Jesus was a 41-day-old baby. He would not remember these events. But they're setting in motion a pattern that's going to be lived out over the arc of the time that Jesus lives under their roof. And then remember what the Bible says in Exodus 13, the sort of bookend this practice. And when you come, and when in time to, you, to come, when your future, your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, talking about the practice of Passover, say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So every time you do something connected to the Exodus, you're telling our story of how God with a mighty hand and outstretched arm delivered us. Egypt was the greatest power the world had ever known. Egypt was believed to have the most powerful gods, but the one true and living God who in the way the world viewed the power of gods, didn't have any land, so couldn't have any power, came down to Egypt and killed the firstborn of the Pharaoh. 
and the firstborn in all of Egypt to show that he alone was God and to set his children free. Tell the story over and over and over again. Live the story over and over and over again. When the Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrificed the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males. That's of their animals. But I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. So here's what's happening. On the 41st day of Jesus' life, they're going to the temple to say, a long, long time ago, our God was faithful to deliver us as a people. And this child, generation after generation after generation, this firstborn male belongs to God. His life is a grace gift of God and we dedicate him to the Lord to remember the great deliverance that God has done in the past. But they also are doing it because they hope for a deliverance that God is going to do in the future. Remember, they're under the thumb of Rome, another power of the world again. They're looking and longing for the day when God would send the deliverer, when God would intervene again, when God would fulfill the word that Jeremiah had said that when God intervenes to set things right, you're never ever gonna talk about the Exodus again and you've been talking about it for thousands of years. That must be something amazing. So they believe God's word. Now, the second guy, second person is Simeon. We meet Simeon in verses 24 to 27. And Luke describes Simeon there as there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Notice we've seen this used to describe Zechariah. We've seen this used in the way that Mary and Joseph are acting. And now with this man, righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. Drawing on the language of Isaiah 40, talking about God's intervention. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. So here we have Simeon. Luke describes Simeon in a great way, righteous, devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for God, longing for God, begging for God to do a mighty work to set things right. Simeon knew the promises of God and believed that God would work to complete his promise. He never failed to trust. Luke tells us one more very important thing, one thing that sets him out as a prophet. Three times he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in his life to bring him to this place at this moment to say these words from God. Simeon has begged God to rescue his people and he received God's promise that he would see the Messiah, that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Deliverer. So, verse 27, guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law. So he believed in God's promise. He believed that God was going to do this. And when the Spirit prompted him, he went to the temple. He was not there every day scanning, looking, trying to see, is this the day that the Messiah is gonna show up? He was not there Day after day after day, he is there because the Spirit guided him on this day of all days to be there. This was not chance. This is the faithful action of a faithful God who always keeps his promises. Always. At the heart of everything we've seen through these last five weeks is that this is one thing we can always know. God keeps his word. In a world where we don't do a great job of that, God always does. God promised through the prophets that he would send a king and now Simeon is going to see the king. He's going to the temple that day because the spirit has prompted him, you're going to see the deliverer today. You're going to see the king today. It's all happening now. And he goes. Then we see the third person, Anna. 
Verses 36 and 37, particularly the last part of 37, we're told she did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. Her fasting and praying shows that all is not well. She was a woman advanced in age, but she had not lost any steam, really. She was moving forward day after day after day, having dedicated herself to serving God with all of her ability. The the text uh, tells us that she either was 84 years old or that she had been a widow for 84 years. The CSB takes it in that way. So uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 years old, give or take. This is Luke one more time emphasizing how old people are. It's very encouraging for those of us who are getting older. Anna is focused on God's work. She's focused her whole life. Think about this. She has been a widow from from her early 20s. Whether she's been a widow for 60 some odd years or uh, and she's 84 total or or for 84 years she's toiled as a widow. She could have grown bitter, frustrated, angry at being a widow in her 20s instead. She spent her life in prayer to God, in fasting, knowing that all things are not well. That was the story of her life, but longing for and knowing that God was going to make all things well because God always keeps his word. So she's been begging God to show his greatness by intervening to rescue his people. The way that it's described here is to rescue Jerusalem. She wants God to intervene and she's there by God's grace see it. Which brings us to the second thing we need to heed today. Recognizing that God keeps his promises always gives contentment in a discontented world. We live in a world just like Anna and Simeon and Mary and Joseph that is broken that is filled with discontentment. Because all of the things in which we have placed our trust always let us down. Our favorite athletic team, our favorite political party, our favorite leader, our favorite whatever is always going to let us down. And that leads to discontentment, frustration, anger, so many ways but recognizing that God keeps his promises gives contentment in a world that is broken and filled with discontentment. So let's see how that plays itself out. How does, let's ask ourselves this question. How does Simeon's song show contentment? He says this in verses 29, the first part of verse 30. We've had a lot of spirit-filled songs in these first couple of chapters. For those of you that don't like a musical theater, it's gonna wane as we get into it a little bit more, but we've got a little bit of musical theater going on here in the first couple of chapters. And so now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. Notice God's promise. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon has received the one thing in life that he has desired. He has seen the salvation that God has prepared for all people. He has met the king. Now, think about what he saw. A 41-day-old baby who can only scream, cry, and use the restroom and eat. You can do that too. He's met the king, only known through eyes of faith, which frankly is true for all of us. And now he's ready to go. All the other details of life are irrelevant because he has seen the king. Now, I could fall over dead right now, right here in the midst of the temple but I can do that in peace because God has kept his word and I have seen the deliverance. You know, we say things like 
that? If only this will happen, then I could die happy. You know, in Chicago for about 100 years, the, the folks would say if the Cubs win the World Series, I could die happy. But when the game was over and the last out was made, I, I doubt many people were ready to die. They wanted to celebrate. You know, not to make too many people upset, but maybe some South Carolina football fans might say if the Gamecock could beat Clemson again, I would be content and die. But they don't really mean that. We might say, if I can get this thing, I'll be content. But it's a fool's bargain. Because none of these things that we think will give us satisfaction, none of these things that we long for ever deliver for very long because we win the big game and then the next game we lose. There's gonna be another season, hopefully. I think that's one of the things for me, honestly, that's been a benefit of this pandemic. When sports went away, when March Madness in particular, because my team was playing pretty well at the time, took that away, I was frustrated. I missed it. It was maddening. And I thought in the beginning of the pandemic that when sports came back that I would really want to watch, that I would be glued to the television set, that I would really care, but the thing is now more than nine months in, it, that's not what happened. I really haven't gone back because it just seems a little less significant. Which leads then, I think, to the realization that we see here in Simeon. Simeon's long obedience, day by day by day, walking faithfully in the midst of a broken world gave him the proper perspective on his present circumstances. Having the right view of the world only comes by going through trauma and death. Luke seems to imply he doesn't come right out and say it like he has about some of the ladies along the way and Zechariah as well that he doesn't really come out and say that Simeon's old, but it sure seems that way. Uh, There's some apocryphal words that have said he was around 112 to 115, somewhere in that neighborhood. He doesn't come right out and say that, but it sure seems like Simeon's seen a lot of people die. If he's prayed that God was going to let him live till he saw the Lord's Messiah, and that's emphasized as something quite significant, it would imply, I think, that he's pretty old and seen a lot of death. But when he gets what he looks for, because of that long obedience, he's ready to go. Because he has found the greatest peace in knowing God. Because God really can satisfy. Knowing God is the only satisfaction that lasts now and into eternity. And he was ready. I can die right now in complete peace because I've seen the king. And remember, he's just a baby. So that leads then to the last part of what we see here. Jesus' first arrival in Jerusalem is the climactic beginning, which seems a bit odd, those don't often go together, of the gospel. This is Tiger, six months later, eight months later, at Augusta, blowing the field away, setting a scoring record that wasn't topped until this fall. This is Michael Jordan scoring 55 points at Madison Square Garden after trying to be a baseball player. This is the next big thing on the biggest stage and he's 41 days old. So what's Jesus gonna do? Look at what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Blessed 
let that wash over. Like, like we've maybe read this text several times in our past, but let that wash over us what he's saying here. You've got a 41-day-old baby. Like, he's not won three U.S. amateurs. He's not won three U.S. juniors. He's not played at the Masters when he was 19. There is nothing but a 41-day-old baby sitting right here in front of him. Like, you could maybe have guessed that Tiger was gonna win the Masters. This is a 41-day-old baby that can't do anything. And he says there, looking at the totality of Jesus' life, I saw your salvation in the eyes of that kid. It's as good as done, and he's changed the world in 41 days. That's something that only the Spirit can give. And frankly, it's something the Spirit still is the only one that can give. Jesus is going to bring salvation. In fact, he is salvation. And he's salvation for the entire world. He is the one who is going to demonstrate that the kingship of God is not confined to this little narrow strip of land in the Middle East. The kingship of God is universal. It's cosmic. He is the one before whom every king will bow, the one before whom every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This child is the deliverer. He is the king and he's coming to save, which leads then to a question of, well, who's he come to save? Well, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, something hidden now made known to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. So who's Jesus coming to save? Jesus brings and is the light who reveals the one true God to Gentiles. But at the same time, we see this several times in Isaiah. We're gonna read through these really fast, but there are several texts that provide the foundation and give us this scope of retelling the story over and over and over and over and over again, not in the way that it becomes rote, stale, but in a way that brings life and changes everything about who we are every day. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I've called you for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. And there it is, a light to the nations. You're gonna be destroyed, but in the midst of the destruction, you're gonna become a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. Think about Exodus, when God reveals himself to Moses, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols, but he will give it to Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. Isaiah 49, now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him. This is one of those servant songs. So that Israel might be gathered him for I am honored in the sight of the Lord. My God is my strength. He says, it is not enough. Like, think about this. Israel's gonna be destroyed. They're gonna be sent off into exile. They're gonna be nothing scattered. It's not, it's not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. That's nothing. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord shines over you the glory of the Lord is, is displayed in this light that, that is emanated from the throne of God in Isaiah 6. For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you. His glory will appear over you. The glory that departed from the temple will appear over you. The glory of the Lord will return. Jesus is the glory of God returning to his people. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. And he goes on. From there in chapter 60, but Jesus brings and is the light who reveals the one true God to the Gentiles and he is the glory of God to Israel. But notice there in verse four, raise your eyes, command to them and frankly a command to us who live now. Raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers 
the blessings of the covenant will come, then you will see and be radiant. The glory of God that has returned, the light that has shined now shines out of you. You will be radiant. You've been downcast and broken and living in darkness, but now you will display and reflect this glory revealed. Your heart will tremble and rejoice. That's what happens when you're brought into the presence of God. There's trembling and rejoicing. There's reverence and excitement because the riches of the sea will become yours. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense. It's interesting. And proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter will be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth will serve you and go up to on my altar as an acceptable sacrifice. I will glorify my beautiful house. The house of David that God is building and is now ascending to the throne again. So what will Jesus cause? In all the excitement, in all the joy, there's still brokenness. Because the kingdom has come, but it's not yet complete. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother, Mary, indeed this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Soaring words of great joy that the salvation of God has come, but it's not gonna come without pain. You see, Jesus both unites and divides. Jesus presents himself here as a 41-day-old baby and next week as a 12-year-old young man and, and then in his ministry. And he says, look at me. Give your whole life to me and you will know peace and rest and have hope in death. but that's gonna come at a cost. It's gonna come at a cost to his family who recognize that controversy follows this young Jesus everywhere he goes and they even think maybe he's pushing a little too hard and going a little too far and they want him to come home. Because if you keep pushing like this, it's gonna lead you to a place of death. But you see, that's the irony. This kingdom that will never end is going to come through a death in the place of sinners. This proclamation of the kingship of God, this gospel proclamation that God's king has come, this kingdom only is established not through victory as the world conceives it, but victory in the way that God conceives it. A victory through death in the place of sinners. Jesus has come, as Luke tells us later on, to seek and to save the lost. He unites those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the Jew and the Gentile, under one banner, under one king, in one family. But he also divides. Those who reject Jesus will be under God's wrath. It was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. You see, Jesus says, I am the son of God and I can give you all that you desire, the satisfaction that you long for. I offer it to you if you repent and believe in me. But we want to be our own king. And we want to make our own satisfaction. And that's where the division comes. And so this morning, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we are faced with this final question. 
am I going to walk as someone who is faithfully declaring the faithfulness of God because God always keeps his promises? Am I going to live in the contentment and satisfaction that he gives in a discontented world so that I can be the radiant face of the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus and be one that God uses on mission so that folks can go from death to life, be united under Christ and not be the one who stumbles over the offense that is his death on the cross. If we want to live the long obedience of the year ahead to grow in grace and to grow in wisdom, our path is to follow his path. And I pray that God would give us the grace to do it. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you always keep your word. We thank you that in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. We thank you that when everything in us is warring to build discontentment and frustration that we can look to you and know that you have done everything in our lives as a demonstration of your grace. The things that some mornings we get up and we just hate because they, re, they, they demonstrate our limitedness, our brokenness, our discontentment. You have brought them into our lives to show us that the only way to contentment is a long obedience. In a life of pain. But a long obedience lived with contentment that only you provide brings abiding satisfaction that causes us to shine as lights of your glory in a world that only knows sadness in the end. Lord, give us grace to endure, give us grace to be faithful, give us grace to shine the light of your glory from the face of Jesus Christ every day, no matter what 2021 holds, whether it be better than the mess of what we've seen this year or worse, Every day will be a gift of grace. And I pray that you will help us to grow in contentment with whatever that day brings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.